0: Well Good morning, everyone. we 're going to continue in our study of Second Samuel We'll be in Second Samuel 19 this morning. we 're going to pick up on verse nine of Second Samuel 19 and this morning, continuing to walk through the story of David, this roller coaster story of David. If you 've been with us the last couple of weeks, we 've seen a lot of things happening, good, bad, ugly, all kinds of things happening in the last week. Um, We saw that David was king over um, the Israelites and was kicked out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom, who was gathering people around him to, um, to, to manipulate the situation, and David had to leave at that. We see that Absalom was killed last week in that after explicit instructions from David not... To do so, um, David's uh, general of his army decided to take things into his own hands and killed Absalom there. And so we're seeing this, this story unfold, and we're seeing a story that continues to unfold that, that I think as we're walking through 2 Samuel, there are often times, I know for me, when we're walking through this, that I think, is there any hope at all in 2 Samuel? Is there anything good about what's happening here? Is there any opportunities that we have to see even the slightest glimpse of goodness And 2 Samuel because it seems like each chapter, chapter after chapter, page after page, it's just one gigantic mess after another. It's another murder. It's another manipulation. It's another disappointment. It's another fear-driven thing. It's another division. It's it's rebellion. It's all kinds of things, one after another after another. But in this chapter in 2 Samuel 19, we get, I think, a taste of the kingdom. A taste ever so small because we're going to flip the page again next week, and the story kind of goes back to what we feel like it should be as we're going through 2 Samuel. But we get these little glimpses in 2 Samuel 19 as David, now Absalom dead, now David being called back to Jerusalem to lead his people. The king returning to his rightful throne, we see a glimpse of what could be. A glimpse of what is right, a glimpse of what. Um, we've been hoping for, what we would love to see happen in the kingdom. And this morning in 2 Samuel 19, I want us to see that the rightful king returning to his throne. We see a glimpse of the kingdom in David's return. And now if you see on your notes, that is intentionally capitalized. And I don't mean the Israel kingdom. I don't mean the kingdom of Israel. I mean the kingdom of God. That in this return, we get just a taste of of what the kingdom of God looks like and will look like in um, the return of Jesus. We see a kingdom that is radically different than anything on earth. A kingdom that is marked by humility and forgiveness and longing and obedience. But as we'll see as we walk through this chapter, that as always, an earthly king will never be enough. As always, we need something more. And we've been given more. And I want to leave us this morning, as I hopefully we do every single week, giving you a longing for something more, and then a realization of where that longing can be satisfied in Jesus. That we see David, as good as he, king, as he was at times, failed miserably short of the true king who has to come to set all things right. I think for all of us, we struggle with this as we look at the life around us, as we look at the news, as we look at our our checking accounts, as we look at our homes sometimes, that we're longing for what could be. That something just feels off. That something just feels not quite right here. We're longing for what could be. We want to be a reflection of what really is. We want to recognize in our lives that this this can't possibly be all that there is. There has to be something more than this. And as God's people, we are to receive what Christ has given to us in the kingdom of God and reflect that kingdom in the world. To receive what Christ gives to us and reflect that in the world. And to live out that freedom in the world around us, reflecting who Jesus truly is. I was reflecting on this and kind of thinking through and examples of this. And I was remembering a story several years ago. Uh, my wife's father, my father-in-law, um, played, used to play in a, a community band. He's in his 70s playing in a community band. And so it's a great band for people in their 70s who like community bands. So they're very talented, but it draws a certain crowd, if you will. Um, a crowd that likes to say seated, if you will. A crowd that loves the national anthem and loves those kinds of songs. A crowd that sits and takes in what is given to them, if you will. We go to those whenever we're out there. Whenever my father and I would play, he plays the trombone, does a great job at it. We would sit at those things. And again, those are times where you sit seated and enjoy the music. We went to one concert of his several years ago, and there was a man who decided in the midst of this to stand and to dance immediately in front of the, of the band. Now, we recognized very early on, very clearly, this was a man who was mentally challenged. But in this moment, he could care less about what was going on around him. He was enjoying the moment, freely dancing to music that was not designed to be danced to, but freely dancing and enjoying himself in that moment, reflecting the joy in the music. He could care less about what was going on around him. He could care less about what people thought of him. He was enjoying the music, receiving joy of the music, and reflecting that joy to all around him. And as I was watching him, initially, I think all of us probably, initially, I felt very uncomfortable with what was happening. But as I began to watch him, I also felt very convicted. I saw that in my own life, and I kind of looked at my own life and thought, why do I not live like that? why do I so often live in fear? Why do I so often live in shame? Why do I so often live with restrictions on my life of of not reflecting the joy that is within me? Allowing the world around me, allowing the circumstances, allowing the eyes around me to determine how I respond to a certain thing— and I think in a sense, and I know this wasn't this man's intention in this, and I'm a pastor, so I'm looking for those kinds of stealing those stories wherever I possibly can. And I see in him what I hope to be the freedom that we have, the joy that we have of God's people of living in the world around us. That it doesn't make sense at times for us to dance. It doesn't make sense for us to have the kind of joy and the freedom that we have. There are eyes who will look on us in disdain and and, and, and embarrassment and wondering and pleading and looking around who's going to stop this person from doing this awful thing in this moment. There's a joy in that. There's a freedom in that that I want to live in, that I want us as a church to reflect in our lives. As I look through 2 Samuel 19, we see the, the absolute brokenness all around in 2 Samuel 19 all around in the whole of 2 Samuel, all around in the whole of Scripture. We see the brokenness that is around, but we do, by God's grace, get these glimpses at times of what could be, of what it was meant to be, of how our responses are to be. We are to reflect Jesus and his kingdom to the world around us. Jesus is a thing. Jesus is something. And so we are, because Jesus is— And Jesus acts in a certain way, we can be also. And we can act in that certain way. We can have the same kind of freedom and joy and boldness that Jesus has. Jesus acts in a certain way, so we act in that way. And our lives are to live in such radical obedience and submission to Jesus that the world will take notice. Some will be uncomfortable and will ask you to stop, some will be attracted and say, I want that too. And this is how we live out our lives. And as we go through 2 Samuel 19, I'm not going to read it all now. We'll read it as we go through us. I just want to share with us three things as we think about the returning king. And we think about this king who is returning from, from being a refugee and being sent out of his, the safety of Jerusalem and the safety of the capital. And now returning back to that, we see three things from 2 Samuel 19. One, we're going to see that guilt is met with grace. Guilt is met with grace. We're going to see that mourning is met with joy, joy, and finally we're going to see obedience is met with reward. But obedience is met with reward. Let's look first at guilt being met with grace. Guilt is met with grace. We'll get to the first section there, I kind of look at it at the end. I'm going to skip the first few verses there and jump right into verse 16. We'll get back there in just a little bit. We're going to jump right into 16 through 23, and seeing guilt met with grace. Starting in verse 16, it says, And Shimei, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Now let's pause for a second. And if we remember who this guy was from 2 Samuel 16, just a few weeks ago. This is the same man who was cursing David, throwing rocks at David, following him around and cursing him. And now this man is hurrying to see David. And we can only assume he's got more rocks. He's heard that Jer- David is returning Jerusalem, and he's got a bag of rocks waiting for David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Jerah fell down before the king. And as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all of the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king." Abishai, the son of Zuri answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zuri? that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know that I am this day king over Israel. And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. This seems. This is an amazing turnaround. From just a couple of chapters ago, this man who followed around David and was screaming at David, throwing rocks at him, get out, get out, you man of blood, you unworthy man, get out, get out. This now man is rushing to David, falling on his knees, saying, have mercy on me, I have sinned. And David, with every right to kill this man on the spot, says, "You shall not die." As we look through this chapter in nineteen, I don't know all the motives behind this. I don't know what's going on here. I can imagine there's a lot of politics happening in all of these kinds of things. I, I don't know all of those things, but I do know this is not a natural response. I do know that this is not normal. I know it's not normal for someone who is cursing someone one day on the next day to be seeking forgiveness from that same person. That's not normal. It's not normal for the one being cursed to forgive the one who was cursing them. That's not normal. And what I see in this is a glimpse of the kingdom of God, the, the not normalness of the kingdom of God. That when we come to our king and we recognize we have rebelled against you, I have sinned against you. I have cursed your name. I recognize it. I see it. I know the the response that I am owed for this, but I am pleading for mercy from my king. When we come to our king Jesus in this way, the grace and the mercy that he offers to us is similar to and infinitely better than the grace and mercy David shows to Shimei in this moment. This is a great picture of the kingdom of God. Shimei's response was humble. It was bold. It was clear. Shimei, recognizing who David was, recognizing who was the king, recognizing his sin, we see that Shimei's response was to run to David, to sprint to him, to want to be the first in line, to bow before David, to say very clearly to him, I have sinned. Please forgive me for my sin. This is how we respond in the kingdom of God. This is how those who recognize the depth of their sin and their brokenness respond to the true king. We are honest about our brokenness. We're honest about our sinfulness. We're honest about our rebellion. We don't try to sugarcoat it. We don't try to act like it never happened. We don't try to say my bad. We don't try to say it's my mistake. We don't say I had a bad day that day. We said I sinned and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And in this response, we see David's unbelievable response. Even the priests around him were saying, we should kill this guy. He deserves to be killed for his actions. And David's response was not to disagree with that, but to say he will not die. In the same way, in the kingdom of God, for those who have rebelled against a perfectly holy God, we deserve the death penalty. For our rebellion. And we look at the story of Shimei, and we think that's, that's absurd. We would never do something like that. Who could ever be so bold as to follow a king around and curse his name? But in reality, we do it every day. In reality, on our own hearts, we struggle with it every day when we've been given clear commands of the Lord, clear obedience from the Lord, a clear call to submit our lives to our true king. And we say, no, I want to live my own way. I want to do my own thing. I want to come up with my own plan. And in essence, we're saying, curse you, curse you. And when we come to Jesus, when we come to our true king in humility, our true king responds, you deserve to die, but you shall not die. And Jesus gives us an oath, an oath far greater than David's oath far greater than what David could ever promise to Shimei. We'll see later on, if you read later on in Scripture, David reminds Solomon of this. I I promised not to kill Shimei. And David's response was, wink, wink, I promised not to kill Shimei. So whatever happens beyond that happens. Jesus can give us a better or stronger or clearer, more powerful oath than David ever could. We see in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our, our rebellion against the Lord is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see in Psalm verse one, chapter 103 verses 8 to 12, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. When I look at a passage like this, I I ask the question, I think, is natural for us. How could David do such a thing? Why would David do such a thing? Why would David respond like this in this moment? Now, again, I don't know the fullness of his motives. But I do know that David was forgiven much. And I do know that the Scripture teaches, Jesus himself teaches us, that those who are forgiven much, forgive much. Those who recognize that in their own lives, the sin, the rebellion in their own hearts has been washed by the blood of Christ, has been has been paid for by what God has done. David recognizes, I think in part, that he has been forgiven much in his life. There's still consequences for his sin, but God has forgiven him. God is not dealing with him angrily. God has has taken his sin as far as the east is from the west. And when someone has been forgiven that way, we can forgive in that way. And for us, living out in the kingdom of God, for those who call Jesus your Savior and your Lord, you have been forgiven much. And it is right and natural for those who have been forgiven much to forgive much. To look to our spouse, to look to our children, to look to our co-workers, to look to the one who has hurt you deeply and is seeking forgiveness from you to recognize in your own heart, first and foremost, I deserve to die. I deserve the penalty of God. I deserve to have his face turned away from me. But by his grace, none of those things are true. By the oath of, the Christ, of, of Christ on the cross, none of those things are true. I stand forgiven, so I can now freely, by faith, extend forgiveness to those who have hurt me so badly. And this is how we stand out in a world that, that holds back forgiveness— that loves to hold in resentment, that loves to give revenge, that wants to make sure that we get what everyone is owed in their life. It stands out. We look foolish as the man dancing in front of the band. We look foolish. We look ridiculous. We look out of this world when someone seeks forgiveness who has hurt us so deeply, and we say, it's done. We're moving forward. God has forgiven me, so I have forgiven you. And in this, we see a glimpse of the kingdom of God, because this is what is right and normal and expected in the kingdom of God, is forgiveness, because this is our king. Our king is a forgiving king. He is powerful and true and just and all of those things, but he is forgiving at his heart, that he longs to show grace and mercy. So my question to you this morning, what are you holding on to? What sin, what rebellion, what what thing are you holding on to this morning? That out of fear, or out of shame, or out of whatever it is, you know the king is coming, and you're hiding. You're staying away. You're, You're staying as far away from the king. And my encouragement, my challenge to us this morning is like Shimei, run to the king. Bow before the king, acknowledge your rebellion, acknowledge your sin before him. He knows it anyways, and receive the forgiveness that he promises to give you. This is the king that we serve. Not only is guilt met with grace, but mourning is met with joy. Mourning is met with joy. We see another snapshot, chapter 19 is kind of these these small snapshots of those who have come into David's life in the past, who are now kind of all showing up at the same time. Starting in verse 24, down to verse 30, we see mourning met with joy. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Just a quick reminder of what's going on here. This is grandson of Saul, was lame, Mephibosheth. David came in and said to him, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you. You're going to sit at my table from this side forward. Ziba was the servant of, the leader of the servants of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. There it is. And a few chapters ago, we read that Ziba came to to David and said in that moment, listen, I've come to to provide all these things for you, these donkeys and these foods and all of these things I want to give to you. And David kind of took that without thinking twice about it gave all of the land to Ziba. And now Mephibosheth is coming and saying, listen, the reason I didn't come with you is because Ziba's a liar. Because he said, basically, give me five minutes, I'm going to go out and get a donkey ready for you and take you to David. And in five minutes, he went outside and the donkeys and everything was gone. Ziba took it all. And we see in this moment, David coming to Mephibosheth and saying, why did you not come with me? We're seeing Mephibosheth saying in this this incredible moment here, I've not done anything. I'm not taking care of myself. I've not shaved. I've not washed my clothes because I'm longing for the king to come back. I'm longing for the rightful king to come back. And mourning is met with joy in this morning, in, in this moment. And as David has been gone for all of this time, Mephibosheth has been mourning the loss of his king. And waiting for the moment when his true king is coming back. Demonstrating by not even taking care of himself physically. The mourning, the longing that he had in his heart for the true king to come back to Jerusalem. It was obvious again to everyone around Mephibosheth that he was waiting for the king. Namely, probably the stink and the long beard and the dirty clothes. It was obvious that he was waiting for the king to come back. But his mourning was met with joy. As David is now returning to Jerusalem, David is now coming back. Mephibosheth goes out to meet him and explains to him, this is why I didn't come. This is why I look the way that I look. As I read through this passage of Scripture, I'm burdened again with the reality of the kingdom of God. and Am I living in a way that reflects my longing for the return of the king? Have I received the goodness of God? I've, Mephibosheth tells to David, listen, I got all this stuff from you that I did not deserve. I deserve to be killed, but, but you brought my family close. You, you sat me at your table. You provided for me. You protected me. I didn't deserve any of this. He received all of this from David and now reflecting that longing in his life and knowing what I have received from God that I did not deserve. Am I reflecting a longing for the king to come home? Does the world around me recognize in me that I'm longing for something bigger and better to happen? Maybe it's not that I don't shave and I don't wash my clothes and all of those things happen in my life. And maybe it's the way that I speak to my wife. Maybe it's the way that I raise my kids. Maybe it's the way that I spend my money. Maybe it's the way that I set aside my time. Maybe it's the way that I care for those who are less fortunate than I am. Maybe it's the way that I invest in other things. Maybe it's in all of those things that I'm living in a way to show that my true king is not not sitting on the throne right now. My true king is coming back. Whoever is, is leading our country, whoever is leading our world, that's not my true home. That's not my true leadership. My true king is coming back to me one day. Am I living? Am I responding in, some, in that way? Am I longing more for the things of Jesus, or am I longing more for Jesus himself? What is Mephibosheth's response when David said, I'm going to split the land between you and Ziba? I don't know who's telling the truth. I'm going to split the land between you and Ziba. What is his response to that? I don't want it. All I care about is that my king is home. I don't want the land. I don't want any part of it. I don't want any reward. I just care that my king is home. And again, do I living in such a way that I'm demonstrating that what's more valuable to me is Jesus himself, not the things he can give to me? Am I longing for peace and security and hope and all of those things, or am I longing for Jesus himself? Will I be satisfied if our world is peaceful, but Jesus is not in it? Will I be satisfied if I have everything that I need resource-wise, but Jesus is not a part of it? Will I be satisfied if all of my relationships are going well, but Jesus is not a part of it? And Mephibosheth responds with a resounding no. I want my king. That's all I want is my king. And I have been in mourning, and I have been in fasting, and I have been in longing until this very moment when our King returns. You see, we're living in the same way. Romans chapter 8. Paul tells us in this that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, When we read a passage of scripture like that, does it reflect the longings of our heart? Would we describe our lives as groaning for things to be made right? As groaning for all creation to be set right again? As groaning for our King to come back? Or those who are watching our lives would not really notice any longing apart from what this world can offer us. We seem to be satisfied with what this world can offer us? Or do we live this, with this mixture of mourning and joy, of sadness and joy, of I know things are right and I can feel it in my bones that things aren't right, but God is good in the midst of it. This is how we're called to live. This is how we're called to, to live out our lives and to, to seek and so that, that our mourning one day Will be turned to the fullness of joy. Psalm 30, verse 11 and 12 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silenced, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. I want to challenge us, first and foremost, to remind us as we look at our world around us, you're right. When you look at the world, when you watch the news, when you see what's happening, you are right to feel something is off. Something isn't as it should be. That is a right, godly, supernatural feeling that is in your heart and in your soul. To produce a longing in you to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. To be satisfied when Jesus is back on his throne, fully reigning over the earth as he always is intended to do. So the story continues on. We see not only is guilt met with grace, not only is mourning met with joy, but obedience is met with reward. Obedience is met with reward. We get a third kind of out of nowhere person popping up in 2 Samuel 19 again. Now Barzillai, the Gileadet, starting in verse 31, had come down from Rojelam and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim. For he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord my king?' Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city. near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is my servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. But all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal and Shimham went on with him and all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Again, what we're seeing, this little snapshot, this little story from the past being brought into this moment, that Barzillai, as David was leaving Jerusalem, Barzillai was a guy who met David along the way and provided food for these refugees as they were escaping their home in Jerusalem, provided overwhelmingly for them as they were leaving Jerusalem. And as now David is returning to Jerusalem, Barzillai comes once again to give honor to the king. And David wants to reward this obedience— David wants to give thanks for this and say, you're now coming with me and that everything I have is yours and whatever you desire because you were so kind to me. Barzillai's response was, no thanks. I'm old. I've had enough. I'm satisfied with what's been given to me. Why should I receive a reward from my king? And I love the humility in Barzillai. I love this kind of, again, this kingdom mentality mentality of it was, I can imagine Barzalek saying, it was, it was only right for me. It was only obedience for me. It was the right thing to do for me to provide for my king. It was not seeking some reward. I was not jockeying for some position in your cabinet. I saw a need and I stepped in and fulfilled that need for my king. And this is the kingdom of God. As we seek to serve others, as we seek to walk alongside others, it's not for what we can receive back from it, but because it honors the king because it honors him, because it reflects who we are, because it reflects the generosity that God has been given to us, that we step into this and we serve others. Barzillai served David not for the right thing to do, because, but, because of, of, but because of the reward. Not for the reward, because it was the right thing to do. He served David in faith, and David rewarded that faith. And Barzillai responded in humility to that faith. And again, this is how we live it out in the kingdom of God. That by faith, we serve. By faith, we're obedient. By faith, we do what is right in honoring to our king. Not ultimately because we will receive a reward for it, but because it honors the king. And but by God's grace, he rewards those who faithfully obey him. My motivation is not ultimately reward. My motivation is Jesus. But in God's kingdom, in the way that he works, he also gives rewards to those who by faith obey him. Barzillai responds in this way. I want to be like Barzillai when I grow up. When I'm 80 years old, I want to serve in the same way. I want to give to my king generously. I want to give away generously, not for the sake of any honor in myself, but in the sake that the king might know that I love him. And respond in generosity. You see in Hebrews eleven and chapter six it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in your Lord in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That when we are faithful to our king, when we are obedient to our king, our king recognizes that, sees that, and our work is not in vain. God rewards those who obey him. As we look through these, this chapter again, and we see these three stories, of Shimei coming and repenting, and David giving him graciously a forgiveness that he did not deserve. Mephibosheth saying, i have been longing for you, and I'm satisfied now, and satisfied alone that my king has come back. And now with Barzillai, giving generously to David, being rewarded for that. We see in the story what I, I think gives us a glimmer of hope. Gives us just a little bit of glimpse of what could be, of what the kingdom could look like if those who are obedient to Jesus lived out the kingdom in their lives, received and reflected that. Longing for our king to come back. But as most stories in the Old Testament, something changes. Something shifts. The wind blows again. There's something shiny over there, and things change. And this story in Second Samuel 19 is no different. See, at the beginning of this chapter, and the end of this chapter, this, these good stories are bookended with pride. Are bookended with the reality that we need something bigger and better. At the beginning of the chapter in verses 9 through 11, Absalom is now dead. Israel said our king that we set up, our false king that we now set up, is now dead. We should probably bring the real king back. David was nice to us, remember? He helped us against the Philistines. He provided for us. We should probably bring him back. How quickly they go from one king to another. From one seeing things as they, as they are in front of them to another. And we do not see anywhere in the, the nation of Israel a, a reflection of what does God want us to do in this moment? There's no sense of, Lord, direct us. The king that we set up is now dead. What is our next move? We see nothing of that. It's an immediate, we've got to fix this ourselves. It's an immediate, we've got to set somebody else into the throne. And we see at the end of this chapter in verses 41 to 42, it ends with all these great stories. Shimei is forgiven. Mephibosheth shows his great joy that the king has come back. Barzillai is rewarded, and his servant is rewarded greatly for that. And the very next verse in verse 41 says, And all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, We have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king. And David also, we have more than you. Why then you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This This is like, in the middle of this chapter is like a gray stormy day, and the sunlight punches its way through, and at the end of the chapter, the clouds roll back over again. The storm clouds come right back in. They're instantly arguing about who David is, and who they should belong to, and who was the right owner of this, and we asked him to come back first, and there's 10 tribes of us, and only a few of you, and all of these things are going around. And the reality, it shows us, again, that we get tastes of the kingdom of God at times. And that everything this world offers us falls miserably short. We will consistently fall back on wanting something less than what God has for us. The reality here, as we see is in this, that Jesus must come. David is not enough as good as he was in these first few verses of showing forgiveness and providing for and protecting, as good as he was in these, in these few verses, he's not enough. Because he cannot change the hearts of men. He cannot change their hearts to longing for ther- themselves and longing for something less than. Jesus and Jesus alone can do that. As we close this morning in thinking about this passage of Scripture, I want to encourage us, kind of two different people this morning. Those who are trusting in Jesus, I want to challenge you this morning to think, am I living in a way that reflects a longing for the return of the King? Have I received great forgiveness from the King in such a way that I am reflecting that in the world of those around me? Have I received grace and goodness and provision that I did not deserve, that I could not have built up, that I want to share that my love and my satisfaction in Jesus alone? Am I serving in a way that shows that my hope and my joy is in Jesus alone and not in the gifts that he gives to me? Are we longing for the king to come back? Are we looking with joy for the king to come back for those who are in Christ? And for those this morning who are not yet followers of Jesus. Let me be very clear, maybe even sober in this moment. The king is returning. He's coming back. It's not a what if, it's a win. It's not a maybe, it's a win. Our king is coming back to set all things right. And for those that he meets who are unrepentant, will receive the true justice that is owed to them from a mighty and holy God in its fullest sense. For those who are caught up in this world, in the revelry of this world, in the worldliness of this world, and caught up in satisfaction of this world, you will be met with despair and disappointment when all that you thought was good is taken from you. For those of you who are are serving yourselves and only looking out for yourself and only doing things in a way that benefits you, Whatever reward, as minuscule and as tiny as it is in this world, is all you will get. It's the end of it. And in this one, I want us to see two things. One, for those who are in Christ, a joy in us, a longing for us. This can be true. This can be reality. This is the full picture. We'll be able to see this. But also for those who read this, there should be in us a, the King is coming. Am I ready? Am I receiving him? Am I joyfully responding to his return, or am I running in fear? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to, to read this passage, to serve alongside you, Lord, to know that you are a great king, to know that you are the one who has, has rescued us, who has forgiven us, who has extended immeasurable grace to us. That we are deserved a punishment. We are deserved to to be set aside from you. We deserve the, the shame and the guilt that we have heaped on ourselves for our rebellion and our cursing of you. But by your grace and by your mercy, you extend that to us. You freely, joyfully give that to us. Not by our works, but Jesus, through your death and resurrection, we can be made right. We pray that we would live lives that honor you, Jesus, our, our King, who is not simply a King far off coming back, not simply a King we are waiting to sit on the throne, a King who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, now seated on His throne, that we are waiting for the fullness of Him to return. Jesus, we pray that we would honor you with our, your lives. We would reflect that forgiveness to others. We would reflect our longing, our dissatisfaction with this world to others. We would reflect, God, a selflessness as we serve you for the sake of honoring you. Help us, Jesus. It is only you. Only you are our true king. Only you are good. Only you can restore what has been broken, what feels like irreparably broken. Only you can repair, restore, and redeem. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing this song?